The year is 1987, and CBS launches new sitcom The Popcorn Kid, which disappears into obscurity after six episodes. In a fit of midlife nostalgia, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling finds recordings of episodes and steps into the forgotten TV studio 35 years later. to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast with no advertising. Although, I can't promise that forever. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Joshua Driscoll. Stay tuned at the end to find out how you can support the podcast. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. As a youngster, my earliest memories of moviegoing involved attending the downtown Brunson Theater in Baytown, Texas in the mid-1970s. While the newer Bay Plaza Twin on North Alexander Drive certainly provided some competition, many would still take their families to the old Brunson to see a show. In the final days of this practice, a cartoon short often accompanied the main feature at the Brunson if the film had family appeal. In fact, the Brunson ran Saturday Kitty shows throughout the 1970s. For 75 cents, you could see six cartoons, a Three Stooges or Laurel and Hardy short, and a movie like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. The line for the show would sometimes wrap around the corner onto South Jones Street. If you were dropped off for the Saturday Kitty Show, you might line up at Texas State Optical next door to use their phone to call your mom to come pick you up. And if you had misbehaved, theater manager Mr. Honeycutt might have had a word with her. I often didn't get to the Saturday Kitty Show, but recall going out on Friday or Saturday nights and seeing first-run G-rated fare, such as Herbie Rides Again, Benji, or the Apple Dumpling Gang as well as re-releases of Disney's Old Yeller, Bambi, Pinocchio, The Jungle Book, in this era before cable TV or videotapes, when Disney re-released a film, you went to see it. Occasionally, even slightly more mature selections like The Pink Panther Strikes Again were allowed. Kato, you imbecile not now! 
But if the film was too mature, the Brunson newspaper ad read, Leave the children home, and parents knew to do so. Of course, I knew nothing at the time about the history of this Texas Avenue theater, which had a beautiful red brick exterior and brightly lit vertical neon sign reaching 50 feet in the air, topped with the consolidated Tri-City symbol in stainless steel and neon, representing Goose Creek, Pelly, and Baytown. The Art Deco design on its front facade included six concrete relief panels designed by Rudolf Wagner, representing the industries of Baytown. Inside the lobby, you were greeted with a green leather circular settee, and to your right, the enormous ornate glass candy counter with illuminated shelving, professionally decorated with seasonal themes, called the confectionery, mesmerized children and adults alike even if you just ended up buying a pickle juice snow cone and popcorn. The Brunson was built in 1949 at a reported cost of $100,000, the equivalent of $1.2 million today. It featured an 1,185-seat sloped auditorium and a 325-seat balcony with restrooms for both floors. The state-of-the-art pink plush Kroller pushback seats ensured patron comfort, and subtle downward cove lighting every four rows illuminated the carpeted aisles. Modiograph projectors and mirophonic sound was installed, as well as a 17 by 22 foot fire-resistant silver screen from the Williams Screen Company of Ohio. Hearing-impaired patrons were delighted by hearing aids available on 18 of the seats. Even the sidewalk outside the theater was made of black, iridescent concrete. Yes, even though this was his eighth theater, this was owner Howard E. Bronson's Jewel of the Gulf Coast. The first movie shown was Donald O'Connor's musical comedy, Yes Sir, That's My Baby and Miss Texas was on hand to cut the opening night ribbon, after which she appeared on stage accompanied by Al Sacker and his electric organ. A seven-page spread in the Baytown Sun elaborated the seemingly endless innovative features of the Brunson. As modern as tomorrow. Before my time, Brunson manager Rufus Honeycutt engaged in some wild promotional stunts during his theater managing career. A former radio station manager, he began working as a projectionist in 1930. Taking cues from theatrical promoters like William Castle and H. Kroger Babb, Honeycutt concocted endless promotions which were repeatedly written up in the Baytown Sun, weaving a story that reveals the six-foot-tall man was larger than life. Yes, there was the gorilla suit used to promote various films, the shaggiest dog contest when the shaggy dog played, the grave giveaway of Halloween 1956, where a complete burial plot with gravestone was placed in the lobby, which made the cover a variety the following month. But some of Honeycutt's stunts would undoubtedly have gotten him arrested in modern times. There was the time he airdropped 100,000 promotional cards advertising 1956's Anastasia. Intended to litter the neighborhoods of Baytown, a change in wind direction meant all of them ended up in Tabs Bay, south of town. And not a single fish showed up to the movie. 
the time he convinced an usher to get on the roof of the Brunson and threatened to jump to promote the Hitchcock short Man with a Problem. Even though he cleared the stunt with Police Chief McKee the prior day, the chief went out of town and failed to tell anyone about it. When police and firemen showed up with the rescue net, Honeycutt had the boy come down. It's all right, everyone. The boy decided not to jump because he wants to live long enough to see the movie playing at the Brunson. To promote 1959's The Hanging Tree, a life-size dummy was hung by the neck from an ersatz rooftop gallows. And the wildest story may have been the live 17-foot, 300-pound anaconda he borrowed from a circus wintering in Beaumont to promote a jungle picture. When it died in the Brunson lobby, he had the snake stuffed and took it to display at the Channel View Theater. Eventually telling neighborhood boys to bury it, they just threw it under an overpass. At the next heavy rain, citizens of Channel View panicked when a 17-foot anaconda floated by in a roadside ditch. When a helpful motorist got out and shot it, the police became involved, and Honeycutt heard about the incident on the radio, knowing he again would have some splaining to do. Mr. Honeycutt retired in 1974, and H.E. Brunson died in 1977. In 1981, the San Jacinto Mall opened, which featured the Cinema Six, spelling the beginning of the end for the Brunson, prompting the management to spell out, Save Me, on the V-shaped marquee. By 1982, the Brunson had become a dollar theater, and by the end of the year, it was showing only Spanish-language films. By January, the Brunson had closed for good. On February 12th, Rufus Honeycutt, the P.T. Barnum of Baytown that managed the Brunson for 25 years, died at age 72. The building came to be owned by the city and sat abandoned for decades. The story of the Brunson is hardly unique. Thousands of downtown single-screen theaters faded out of use as moviegoing became more focused on herding patrons in and out of rapid-fire released blockbuster films. The rise of the public now flocking to shopping malls to catch a movie after visiting Orange Julius and Corndog 7 compounded the decline of single screens. This segues into our story. If you're playing this, you know the show title. Long-time listeners might be thinking, didn't you already do The Popcorn Kid? Well, yes. In many ways, The Popcorn Kid is the original forgotten TV show. It came and went in the spring of 1987 before most people knew it had arrived. By that time, I was also a popcorn kid, riding my moped to my job at the new West Texas Theater I now worked at. That first short podcast did consider the Popcorn Kid on its 30th anniversary, but hardly did the show justice, with only about nine minutes spent discussing it. I also thought this would make a great introductory podcast episode for new listeners. So for what is now the 35th anniversary of the Popcorn Kid and the 5th anniversary of Forgotten TV, return with me now to 35 years ago, March 1987. Let's see what's on. Everything starts like a knock at 
help you. Tonight on Forgotten TV, Bruce Norris, Penelope Ann Miller, Jeffrey Joseph, and Faith Ford star in The Popcorn Kid. Next. The Popcorn Kid was created by Barry Kemp and Mark Ganzel. We'll have a full look at the casting, creation, and production of the show shortly. Now, let's look at our cast of characters who all worked at the downtown Majestic Theater in Kansas City a movie palace from an earlier era no longer in its prime, but still hanging on in the new world of blockbusters and automated multiplex theaters. Our cast includes Scott Creaseman, the titular popcorn kid, ticket taker, usher, and concession stand worker. Scott is 16 and a junior in high school. He wants to be in entertainment somehow and will often let you know. He views his theater job as a way to be closer to the entertainment business. Scott's father is the practical owner of Patio City, questions his son's show business aspirations. Willie Dawson, varsity high school football halfback, whose after-school athletics often make him late for his theater job as usher and concession worker. Willie is more practical than Scott, seeing both his job and involvement in athletics as a means to an end, as he plans to parlay his athletic abilities into opportunities such as a college scholarship. Gwen Stottlemyre, the practical and helpful concession worker and perfectly attractive girl with a 1940s-style hairdo. Think Katherine Hepburn in Woman of the Year, probably secretly a little attracted to Scott. She has a suppressed, antagonistic relationship with Lynn Holly, expressed in snarky remarks. In early promotional photos, Gwen was about to dump a box of popcorn on Lynn Holly's head. Lynn Holly Brickhouse, the all-too-perky, blonde cheerleader, high school miss everything, and new addition to the majestic staff. Lynn Holly is able to coast by in life on her looks and family connections, which is how she comes to work at the theater. Scott's obvious attraction to Lynn Holly is a recurring theme in the show. All the kids were juniors at the same unnamed Kansas City High School. Mr. Brown, the middle-aged theater manager, slightly conservative and a little uptight, with a voice that sounds almost exactly like John Lithgow. Mr. Brown doesn't tolerate stealing, but will occasionally sneak a lemon head out of the box and reshelve it. Mr. Brown answers to the never-seen owner of the Majestic, Mr. Tuttle. Rounding out our cast of characters was Marlon Bond, the wacky projectionist that largely spent his time in the upstairs projection booth. With the Majestic running a classic two-projector system, Marlon needed to be on hand about every 20 minutes for movie reel changeovers, to rewind film reels, and thread the projector for the next reel. Marlon is older than his co-workers, likely around 30 years old. His occasional emergence into the concession stand downstairs would reveal he lived in his own fantasy world and was more at home in his upstairs booth than on the ground floor dealing with other people. Episode 1, The Pilot, 
aired March 23, 1987. Directed by Will McKenzie and written by show creators Barry Kemp and Mark Ganzel, the cold open for this episode introduces us to Scott, which is followed by the series' opening theme. The Majestic Theater is one of the oldest theaters in Kansas City. Well, it's, it's, it's really more than a movie theater. It's a, it's a movie palace. Yeah. They don't build places like this anymore. I've wanted to work in the Majestic as long as I can remember. Oh, see, the truth is, I'd, I'd like to be in the movie business someday. Yeah. Uh, I don't know as what exactly. Maybe a, well, maybe a writer. Maybe a, maybe a director. Maybe a star. <laughs> you know, right now, I'm just trying to be realistic and keep my options open. But, uh, <laughs> as long as I'm living in Kansas City, um, it's where my parents live, then I figure that uh, working in the Majestic is about as close to the movie business as I'm going to get. That's interesting. Can I have my popcorn and root beer now? Sure. Thanks. Just the popcorn and no speeches. pilot episode, Mr. Brown needs to hire a replacement for Brad, who was fired for theft. When perky, somewhat ditzy cheerleader Lynn Holly Brickhouse is selected by nepotism, it's to the delight of Scott and exasperation of Gwen. But when the crew discovers Mr. Tuttle plans to renovate the Majestic into a modern multiplex, it's up to Scott to convince him to keep it the way it is. Two movie posters were prominently seen in this episode. In the projection booth, 1986's Howard the Duck. In Mr. Brown's office, 1940's Strange Cargo. The pilot episode features a conversion-to-multiplex storyline. The dialogue sounded like a major renovation, which would have resulted in the loss of the large auditorium with live stage. It would likely have been split into twin auditoriums with the upstairs balcony being sectioned off into its own screen as a third, or possibly made into a twin there as well, depending on its size, making the Majestic a four-screen multiplex, losing its unique historic qualities. This is very similar to the fate that befell the theater the fictional Majestic was based on. Also, the conversion would possibly have resulted in the loss of Marlin's projectionist job, Instead of using a skilled, dedicated projectionist to change reels and seamlessly switch between projectors at the reel change, multiplex theaters invariably utilized automated flat platter systems. The films on the platters were built up or spliced together from film reels when they arrived and torn down when they left, 
With the 35mm film fed to the projector from the inside of the plattered print and wound onto another platter through a series of pulleys, there was no rewinding involved. Also, three platters were typically used, meaning any screen could easily share two films, alternating the showtimes. Depending on the layout of the projection floor, you could even feed a film from one projector to the next, running the same film print on two screens at the same time. All that needed to be done for each showtime was for an usher or even the manager to thread the projector, after which starting the films was a push-button process. As we'll get into, this pilot episode was filmed practically a full year before its March 1987 air date. Remaining episodes went into production in October 1986. The pilot aired as a special sneak preview on a Monday following Kate and Allie. Though that lead-in series landed second place in its half-hour time slot behind ALF but ahead of MacGyver, the Popcorn Kid came in third for the 8.30, 7.30 Central time slot, and a full three ratings points behind Kate and Allie, meaning many viewers switched to NBC's Valerie instead of staying tuned to CBS for the Popcorn Kid. Next on the Popcorn Kid. Honey, I have got fabulous news. Guess who's just had her application accepted for Miss Kansas City Dream Queen? You're kidding! Lynn Holly, what are you going to do for talent? Let's let's take the obvious things. You know, you, you're you're young, you're blonde, you have a faultless complexion. God, what do these people want? <laughs> Problem? She has no talent. Episode two. There she is, Vic Damone. When Lynn Holly competes in the Miss Kansas City Dream Queen pageant to be held at the Majestic, Scott is enlisted to help her prepare for the talent portion of the contest. But Scott soon not only finds Lynn Holly has no talent, but that Mrs. Brickhouse is heavily emotionally invested in her daughter winning the pageant. In this episode, written by Irene Mecky, who also served as script consultant for the show, Deborah May appeared as Yvonne, Lynn Holly's mother. The episode title is a reference to the song, There She Is, Miss America, long used for the Miss America pageant. The song was written by Bernie Wayne, but was most associated with Burt Parks, who sang it from 1955 until 1979. The episode title also name-drops Vic Damone, an American traditional pop and big band singer, actor, radio and television presenter. His biggest hit songs were 1949's You're Breaking My Heart, 1956's On the Street Where You Live, from My Fair Lady, and his first musical release, 1947's I Have But One Heart. In the episode, when Lynn Holly's record of Barbara Streisand's People is lost, she is forced to lip-sync to a Vic Damone version provided by Marlon. Damone indeed covered People on his 1977 album Vic Damone's Feelings. Released by the obscure, now evidently defunct, independent music label Rebecca Records, the inclusion of this song, which is integral to the plot and title of the episode, means a music clearance from whoever the current right holders are must be obtained for any future release.
and hear the show move to its regular night on Fridays at 8.30, 7.30 Central, following Nothing is Easy. On Against Webster and the final episodes of Amazing Stories, having been moved from its previous Monday night time slot. Next, on the Popcorn Kid. I hate career day. How can your dad expect one career day to change your life? I don't know. He's a dreamer. I'm worried about you. I mean, I always figured this whole idea of show business was something you'd grow out of. I can't help it. It's in my blood. What do you mean it's in your blood? How did it get in there? <laughs> and how do we get it out? Episode 3, Career Day. The cold open for this episode again presents us with an insight into Scott's character. Priestman, you want to record the show times for this week? I know you get a kick out of that. Thanks, Mr. Brown. <laughs> you've reached the beautiful Majestic Theater located at 2222 Algonquin Parkway in downtown Kansas City. This week, the Majestic is proud to present for one week only the all-time Hollywood classic Gone with the Wind, starring Clark Gable, Olivia de Havilland, Vivian Lee, and Scott Creasman. <laughs> it's career day at school, and Scott is nervous about his father's expectation of him selecting a practical vocation rather than his entertainment business dream. Meanwhile, Mr. Brown experiments with an early bird special that doesn't work out as planned. Indicating she may be more intelligent than she lets on, Lynn Holly comes up with good, logical questions for Mr. Brown's early bird special, which he finds attracts cheapskates that don't buy many concessions, which is the real profit center of movie theaters. The normally reserved Mr. Brown has a freakout as a result. This comes after his previous idea of Banana Night for King Kong was also a disaster. Appropriately, the movie poster seen in the projection booth is 1976's King Kong. In this episode, written by show creators Barry Kemp and Mark Ganzel, James Staley guested as Scott's father, Beryl Creaseman. And the production number reveals that this was likely the first episode filmed in October 1986, after CBS ordered episodes for mid-season. Next, on The Popcorn Kid. You mean you've never actually told anyone you don't want to see them anymore? I suppose you're going to put some kind of judgment on that. Is it somebody else? I just told you it wasn't. Lynn Holly, if it's somebody else, I'll leave you alone. Just, just, just tell me the truth. All right, Leo. Yes, it's somebody else. It is? Yes. Who? Him. <laughs> Episode 4, The Breakup. When Lynn Holly breaks up with her older boyfriend over the phone, he takes a 24-hour leave from the Marines to come home and straighten things out. Of course, Scott gets dragged into the middle of things at great physical risk. Meanwhile, Gwen helps Mr. Brown figure out something special for his upcoming anniversary. The movie poster seen in the projection booth was 1961's Marines, Let's Go. In this episode, again written by show creators Barry Kemp and Mark Ganzel, Leo Geeter was Lynn Holly's boyfriend, Leo Davenport. He later starred in the series Eisenhower and Lutz and FM. This episode features a rare scene located outside the theater when Lynn Holly and Scott go on their date to a 1950s style soda shop. Next, on the Popcorn Kid. What are we talking about? Having a film festival. No, it's high time someone paid homage to one of America's finest and most overlooked actors. Who's that? Edward Asner. 
I'm, I'm uh, Scott Creesman. This is Gwen Stottlemyre, uh, Willie Dawson, and uh, Marlon Vaughn. <laughs> Episode 5, A Day in the Life of Ed Asner. When Mr. Tuttle decides it's film festival time at the Majestic, at Marlon's suggestion, Kansas City native Ed Asner is selected as the subject. After Asner arrives to the sold-out festival, the whole crew has to run to the basement during a tornado warning. Trapped for an extended time, Marlon decides it's time to reenact some of Asner's movie scenes. This episode, written by Mark Egan and Mark Solomon, featured Ed Asner as himself. Several of his films are name-dropped by Marlon, including Kid Galahad, The Satan Bug, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, El Dorado, Halls of Anger, and The Venetian Affair. Of course, Asner was much more well-known for his television work, which included his role of Lou Grant, a character he played for a total of 12 seasons on both The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Lou Grant. Asner, who really was from Kansas City, did occasionally make appearances there for fundraisers over the years. Aside from his acting, he served as the 21st president of the Screen Actors Guild from 1981 to 1985, and became known as a supporter of progressive causes. Asner even alleged his politics led to the cancellation of his CBS drama, Lou Grant, in 1982. We recently lost Ed Asner in August of 2021 at age 91. Next on the Popcorn Kid. You and Mrs. Brown are buying a house? Well, if we're approved, Mr. Rogus in the cellar is financing the sale himself. He's coming by here in a little while to check me out. Yeah, I need to see the manager. Mr. Brown's expecting you. He's right in there. This is a hold-up? Yeah. But I've never been held up in my life. Oh, well, then you do. Episode 6, A Car, A House, A Mouse, and A Louse. Amidst the news that Willie is buying a car and Mr. Brown buying a house, the Majestic gets held up. But when the robber is quickly disappointed with the lack of cash on hand, he starts to rob the employees, triggering the normally reserved Mr. Brown to again reach his breaking point. In this episode, with the original story provided by Jurgen Wolf and written by show creators Kemp and Ganzel, Kevin Scannell guested as the robber, and Rally Bond was the house seller Mr. Rogeson in likely the weakest episode of The Popcorn Kid We Saw, airing on April 24th. Following this final airing, which lost to reruns of Amazing Stories and Webster, earning a paltry 8.4 Nielsen rating, and tying with Nothing Is Easy for 60th place out of 70 shows on the schedule, CBS took both series off the air, airing specials for the next several weeks into the summer rerun season. Don't go away. The Popcorn Kid will be right back. And now, before the next show starts, let's enjoy an intermission. You'll find our snack bar chock full of good things to eat and drink. Tasty, tempting hot dogs, thirst-quenching soft drinks, fresh, crunchy popcorn, a complete assortment of delicious candy, and a full line of cigarettes. You've plenty of time, so visit the snack bar now. A tasty treat will double your enjoyment of the show. Behind the Scenes The Popcorn Kid was a multi-camera sitcom shot on film before a live studio audience by MTM Productions for CBS. 
Its regular time slot was at 8.30, 7.30 Central on Fridays. MTM was founded in 1969 by Mary Tyler Moore and then-husband Grant Tinker to produce The Mary Tyler Moore Show for CBS. Over the decades, many classic TV shows were produced by MTM, including The Bob Newhart Show, Lou Grant, WKRP in Cincinnati, Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel, St. Elsewhere, and Evening Shade. MTM's production logo seen at the end of its series was something of a running joke, a spoof on MGM's Leo the Lion that roared at the beginning of its films. An orange kitten named Mimsy was used in the MTM logo that meowed. Mimsy was said to be Mary Tyler Moore's own pet cat, born in 1968 and living for 20 years. Frequently, the logo was customized to fit the show. On St. Elsewhere, Mimsy wore cartoon surgical scrubs and mask. On Newhart, Bob Newhart himself uttered the meow. On Hill Street Blues, Mimsy wore a policeman's cap. On video releases, Mimsy operated a remote control and rewound the tape, and so on. Over 25 custom variants of Mimsy were used over the decades. What Mimsy would do on the closing logo for the Popcorn Kid was a matter of discussion commented on by series creator Barry Kemp when the series was on the air. The logo is a joke in itself. We thought about having popcorn fall out of the frame when he turns his head, but it's a pretty small joke for the expensive animation. Besides, I'm a purist. I like the original. Thus, the standard meow was used. Not quite a year later, Kemp learned how involved it was to film what turned out to be three seconds of footage used in a video logo for his new production company, Bungalow 78. The brief clip would feature a static shot of the production bungalow at Universal they worked out of, being shown at night with the lights being switched off. I thought it would take five minutes and we'd be done. I came back from rehearsal and the bungalow was... I don't know, there was a crew of 15 people around, and the whole thing was lit. And I went, this is all just to turn out the lights? They go, yeah, you can't do it otherwise. It was a little bit bigger production than I thought it was going to be. The CBS lead-in show on Friday nights was a series called Nothing is Easy, which was renamed from its original title, Together We Stand, from its original six-episode test run in fall 1986. Older sisters are not the greatest. Kid brothers are sometimes okay, but a new baby? Hey, that's me. I'm the new baby. Well, there's not what you'd call a family resemblance. Wait until you see the rest of the family. How do we explain this to the folks? Together We Stand, a special preview Monday, September 22nd. The show was retooled, returning in February with a new title and theme song and having killed off Elliot Gould's lead character of David Randall, with Dee Wallace Stone continuing as single-parent Lori. An interesting footnote, Dee Wallace is also from Kansas City, Missouri. This was a Sherwood Schwartz production, and was a reincarnation of his 1974 backdoor pilot episode for The Brady Bunch, called Kelly's Kids, about a couple who adopt a racially mixed trio of children. In this new incarnation, Scott Grimes and Kehui Kwan both appeared, who were both fairly well-known from other TV and film roles. The series ran a total of 13 episodes, being taken off the air at the same time as The Popcorn Kid 
leaving six episodes unaired. The Nothing is Easy, the Popcorn Kid Hour was CBS's mid-season attempt to compete in the new sitcom arena of Friday night at 8, 7 central. Aside from a few series that performed well to adult audiences later in the evening, such as Dallas, Falcon Crest, and Miami Vice, Friday Night had been a dumping ground of sorts for sci-fi and fantasy genre action-oriented shows. See The Phoenix, Darkroom, The Powers of Matthew Starr, The Master, Manimal, Blue Thunder, The The Series, Street Hawk, Misfits of Science, The Twilight Zone, and The Wizard. For the spring of 1987, all three networks were now leading Fridays with brand new half-hour sitcoms. NBC's Roomies with Corey Haim consistently edged out ABC's The Charmings, leaving CBS in third place with nothing as easy. With viewers free to change to any channel at the 30-minute mark, they did, and even reruns of Webster fared better at 8.30 than The Popcorn Kid, which fell into the dreaded single digits for its fifth and sixth episodes, virtually ensuring cancellation. CBS then made a slew of cancellation announcements in mid-May, which also included Scarecrow and Mrs. King, The New Mike Hammer, The Twilight Zone, The Wizard, Better Days, The Kavanaugh's, Downtown, K. O'Brien, Hard Copy, Kate and Alley spinoff Roxy, Take Five, Spies, Shell Game, and Outlaws, in addition to The Popcorn Kid and Nothing is Easy. Among the new series ordered by CBS for the 1987 fall season were Frank's Place, a single-camera sitcom with no laugh track, starring Tim Reed, Jake and the Fat Man, a crime drama with William Conrad and Joe Penny, Tour of Duty, a military drama following a platoon during the Vietnam War, Wise Guy, featuring Ken Wall, undercover with the mob, and Beauty and the Beast, a modern fantasy interpretation of the classic tale with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman. There is a somewhat personal story behind the creation of The Popcorn Kid. Series creator Barry Kemp was born in Hannibal, Missouri, but the family moved to Kansas City, where a young Barry played in the Midget Baseball League in the afternoon and enjoyed watching The Dick Van Dyke Show in the evening. Although he knew he wanted to be in the entertainment business from a very young age, he didn't quite know in what capacity and had no industry contacts. Although he says he inherited his sense of comedy from his parents, his father was a little concerned about his show business aspirations. Sound familiar? As a young adult attending University of Iowa and majoring in drama, Kemp acted in, wrote, and directed university plays and later joined the Iowa City Community Theater, while still a student at U of I. After graduating, he followed his family to Phoenix when his father's corporate office relocated there. Selling encyclopedias and insurance to make ends meet, he wrote spec scripts for television with the goal of breaking into the business on the West Coast. A chance meeting with Jerry Van Dyke at the end of 1975 ended up becoming the entry point Kemp had been looking for. At a New Year's Eve stand-up appearance at Phoenix's Red Dog Saloon, Kemp stayed for both performances, and friends encouraged him to walk up and meet the actor during a break in the second show. 
Learning he was a writer, Van Dyke asked him to drop by his hotel with some material for him to look at. Kemp stayed up all night writing six pages of material to bring to Van Dyke's hotel the next morning. Van Dyke put Kemp on a salary, writing scripts and coming up with concepts, with Van Dyke shopping them around Hollywood. For five months, Kemp commuted between Phoenix and L.A., staying with Van Dyke for two- and three-week stretches. When Van Dyke broke his leg and couldn't earn from performing, this arrangement was put on hold. But one day in 1977, Kemp got a call from Jerry Van Dyke. He had shared Kemp's material with James L. Brooks and Ed Weinberger, who, along with two other producers, were getting ready to leave MTM Productions to form a production company at Paramount Television, the John Charles Walters Company. Hi, Mr. Walters! They invited Kemp to come out to Los Angeles and join them. Kemp first worked on writing episodes for Paramount's Sisnik and Out of the Blue, then joined the writer's room on ABC's Taxi, which entered TV's top 10 shows during its initial 1978 season. Kemp is credited with writing 14 episodes of that Emmy award-winning series. In 1982, he left Taxi and John Charles Walters to work on other projects. One of these was a sitcom concept for CBS, developed with MTM writer and Angie producer Bob Ellison. Insecurity featured Annie Potts as a young divorcee who panics when she is suddenly promoted to security chief of a department store. John Randolph and Peter Jurassic also starred. Even though the pilot was reportedly liked by the network, with founder William Paley himself saying it was a keeper, a full schedule, which included series commitments to Bob Newhart and Sally Struthers, resulted in the pilot not being picked up. The other 1982 project was a series for CBS and MTM Productions, a vehicle for Bob Newhart, who had been away from episodic TV since the Bob Newhart show ended four years ago. Newhart hit the air for the 1982 fall season and featured author-turned-Vermont innkeeper Dick Loudon as the straight man to the antics of a variety of oddball characters that would enter his Stratford Inn. Newhart would run for eight seasons and win six Emmy Awards. Starting with the third season of Newhart, Kemp turned executive producer duties over to other people and began developing other series concepts. For one, teaming with Newhart producer Sheldon Bull, and for the other two, his longtime friend, writer Mark Ganzel. Hearts of Steel was a proposed sitcom for ABC starring Annie Potts and Matt Craven, about two unemployed steelworkers who convert a working-class bar into an upscale restaurant. Kemp and Bull wrote this pilot, which was directed by both Kemp and Gary Shimokawa, known for All in the Family and Archie Bunker's Place. It was aired by ABC in June 1986 as an episode of Comedy Factory, which featured pilots the network had passed on. Barry Kemp and Mark Ganzel went back to at least 1969 appearing in a stage play together when Ganzel had just joined Chicago's Goodman Theater, and Kemp was a student at University of Iowa. In the early 1970s, Ganzel performed in the national tour of Godspell and learned improv comedy at Chicago's Second City, 
before moving to Los Angeles. He formed the comedy troupe The Village Idiots, along with Jan Fisher, Robin Hunt, and Peter Jurassic. The Village Idiots were managed by Little House actress Alison Arngram's father, Thor Arngram, and performed regularly on Don Kirshner's rock concert, seen on ABC. The Idiots helped Alison Arngram write her first stand-up act, where she appeared as first daughter, Amy Carter. Hello, White House. Amy Carter speaking. Ganzel also teamed with Jan Fisher to create The Good Book, a series of Bible stories for kids performed as musical skits, which was released on video. When Kemp and Ganzel began working together in 1986, one of their projects was the limited series Fresno, a spoof of Dallas, Dynasty, and other nighttime serialized dramas. Fresno featured an ensemble cast of Carol Burnett, Dabney Coleman, Terry Garr, Gregory Harrison, Charles Grodin, and Jerry Van Dyke. The miniseries explored the exploits of the Kensington family and their Central Valley Raisin Empire. Produced like a feature film and shot over 55 days in the middle of a hot 1986 summer, Fresno aired in the fall of 1986 on CBS in miniseries format on five consecutive nights. The other series being developed and produced alongside Fresno was The Popcorn Kid. As you may have already deduced, The Popcorn Kid presented a semi-autobiographical story based on elements from both Kemp's own childhood growing up in Kansas City and later Fort Dodge, Iowa, as well as that of co-creator Mark Ganzel. The concept behind The Popcorn Kid was that of a teenage workplace sitcom, which may have never been done before. Instead of featuring the teen characters at home, school, or at an after-school hangout, common to youth-oriented sitcoms, nearly all scenes would take place at the theater the teens worked at. While the setup may seem to have a basic similarity to a sitcom like Cheers, the nature of the movie theater setting meant interactions with customers would be brief and not allow for regulars to hang around for an extended time. Thus, the dialogue and narrative would mainly focus on the core characters, their storylines, and workplace shenanigans with the occasional bit provided by theater patrons. Barry Kemp intentionally avoided casting actual teenagers for the working crew, saying at the time, We wanted the show to have a slightly more adult theme to it, so we cast people who looked young. We didn't really want an adolescent. The setting of a downtown movie palace with a single screen and large auditorium was somewhat anachronistic for 1987, as moviegoers had largely migrated to shopping mall multiplexes by that time. This was intentional, as Kemp added, There's a conscious effort to make it feel a little timeless. When movie houses were like this, and you were young and had dreams of doing something. The series could therefore appeal to both a youthful and an adult audience that might recall attending downtown theaters of years past. The pilot for The Popcorn Kid, filmed even before Fresno, shot on April 4, 1986, before a live studio audience at CBS MTM Studios, as it was then known. 
Since production of the pilot overlapped with that of Fresno and Newhart, at one point, Barry Kemp could look out from his third-floor corner office and see the sound stages for all three shows. A soundstage? Watching the popcorn kid, you get the feeling it was filmed at a real theater. There was a box office where Mr. Brown sold tickets, complete with neon and marquee lighting with twin entrances connected to a large, fully decked-out theater lobby with period-accurate wall decor and theatrical accoutrements, real concession counter, large staircase leading up to an implied theater balcony, and so on. MTM evidently didn't cut any corners, indicating they must have believed in the show an incredible $250,000 was spent on the majestic set, making it not only the largest, but the most expensive set ever built up to the time for a three-camera sitcom. However, six full months went by before production of The Popcorn Kid resumed in October, with CBS finally ordering episodes for late in mid-season. Though the cast was barred from taking any other regular TV series roles while waiting on the series order, Faith Ford filmed her first movie, titled, You Talkin' to Me? Jeff Joseph guested on the TV pilot for Throb, a series featuring a 12-year-old Paul Walker. Penelope Ann Miller appeared on stage in Ohio Theater. And Ray Burke filmed a Twilight Zone episode, in addition to Fresno. The cast selected for The Popcorn Kid were mostly newcomers in their first regular TV series roles. Bruce Norris was not quite 26 years old when cast as lead character Scott Creaseman, which he joked about at the time. Well, I don't think I really look that young. The network might not like me saying this, but they pad by putting people around me and calling them teens. I guess that's the happy days syndrome. Of creator Barry Kemp, Norris offered, He has a warped sensibility, and he never tries to make excuses. There are never any morals, and no one learns anything from watching. I'd say his shows are alternatives to The Cosby Show. They're more evil and wicked with humor. He also shared some thoughts on Scott. My character is simply the only sane person in the theater, and he's only that by a little. He's obsessive about certain things. Well, he's neurotic. Prior to his Popcorn Kid role, he had appeared as a background character on the 1983 film Class and in an episode of Kate and Allie. Originally from Houston, Texas, Norris attended Northwestern, studying theater. After performing with several Chicago-area theater troops in the early 1980s, he made his way to Broadway, becoming Matthew Broderick's understudy for Neil Simon's Biloxi Blues. When Broderick left the production to begin filming Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Norris took over the role. In these days, he also says he was hired and fired from a number of television pilots. Two years after The Popcorn Kid, he returned to the stage, bearing it all in the Manhattan Theater Club's presentation of the Joe Orton farce, What the Butler Saw but his experiences with rejection inspired him to write his first play, The Actor Retires, a somewhat autobiographical vehicle for Norris himself, in which he set fire to his own headshots and took up furniture making. 
Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater then produced several of his plays in the following years. Even though, on occasion, he was seen in a movie or TV role, 1999's The Sixth Sense, Third Watch, and here and there on the Law & Order franchise, the now 61-year-old found his calling as a playwright and was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2011 for his play, Clybourne Park. Jeffrey Joseph grew up in Boston and studied acting at both New York University and Juilliard. After appearing in several off-Broadway plays, his focus shifted to comedy. Joseph wrote and performed stand-up material and appeared on episodes of Family Ties and The Facts of Life, before being cast in his popcorn kid role of Willie Dawson. He was erroneously credited as both Jerry Joseph and Willie Dawson, his character name, in the advance CBS press materials. Following the series, he wrote material for In Living Color and made his debut on The Tonight Show in 1990. Throughout the 90s, he continued to perform stand-up in comedy clubs as well as act, popping up on films like Dave and Made in America and TV episodes of Dream On, Lois and Clark, and NYPD Blue. Joseph still acts and performs stand-up comedy. He has most recently been seen on the TV series A Million Little Things, Ghost Rider, and Big Sky, and at events like the Cinderblock Comedy Festival, and he finds time to work as a teaching artist in underserved New York City high schools. Penelope Ann Miller grew up in Los Angeles, attending Menlo College before moving to New York to study theater at HB Studio. One of her earliest acting roles was in the Broadway production of Biloxi Blues, alongside Matthew Broderick and later Bruce Norris. She appeared on episodes of Guiding Light and Tales of the Dark Side, as well as the soccer film Hot Shot before being cast on The Popcorn Kid as Gwen Stottlemyre at age 22. Following Popcorn Kid series production in the fall of 1986, she appeared in episodes of The Facts of Life and Family Ties, then left for Toronto to film Adventures in Babysitting. She returned to the Broadway stage in late 1988 for a revival of Our Town, which was later aired on PBS's great performances. She has since appeared in numerous TV and film roles, such as reprising her stage role of Daisy in 1988's Biloxi Blues, the starring role in 1992's The Gun in Betty Lou's Handbag, and regular TV series roles on The Closer, A Minute with Stan Hooper, Working Again with Barry Kemp, Men of a Certain Age, Mistresses, and American Crime. Now 58, the sometimes actress and always mom can most recently be heard on the podcast series Gaslight and will be seen in the upcoming film Reagan and miniseries Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Faith Ford is likely the most well-known of the Popcorn Kid cast. Growing up in Pineville, Louisiana, she moved to Manhattan at the early age of 17 to seek work in modeling and after a couple of years, landed a recurring role on NBC daytime drama Another World. In the spring of 1986, she was cast as Lynn Holly Brickhouse in The Popcorn Kid 
at age 21. Lynn Holly was evidently based on a real person, as Barry Kemp said, speaking of the character at the time the show aired, There should be a woman in Fort Dodge, Iowa, who sees herself. Immediately following Popcorn Kid production, Ford appeared in a recurring role in early episodes of 30-something. During this time, she auditioned for several TV pilots, including My Sister Sam, and was interested in being cast in the new Judd Hirsch series, Dear John. She was also approached about doing a sequel to 1983's Splash, but rejected the role due not only to the quality of writing, but for practical considerations, as she told reporter Rick Bentley in 1988. I also got to thinking about having to work in that fin and knew I just didn't want to do the role. Splash 2 thus went on without Ford. She was also pursued for ABC's The Wonder Years, potentially playing teenage sister to Kevin Arnold, a role which went to Olivia Diabo. Wanting to pursue more adult roles, she passed. However, producer Diane English recalled Ford's My Sister Sam audition and had seen her on The Popcorn Kid. Seeing some character similarities between Lynn Holly and the role English had her in mind for, Ford was then chosen to play perky news anchor Corky Sherwood on Murphy Brown, a role she played for 10 seasons of that Emmy award-winning sitcom, 11 counting the 2018 revival. Following Murphy Brown, she starred in her own short-lived series, Maggie Winters, as well as popular ABC sitcom Hope and Faith for three seasons. The 57-year-old actress is now filming episodes of TV series Killing It for streaming service Peacock. Ray Burke grew up in Flint, Michigan and attended both Northwestern and University of Minnesota, earning an MFA in theater. He and his wife then taught acting as well as performed at Dallas's Southern Methodist University for three years. Among their students was a young Kathy Bates. Burke then performed in regional theater throughout the 1970s before making his way to Los Angeles in 1983 to pursue television and film work, instead of having a midlife crisis, as he put it. In the 1980s, he appeared in episodes of around a dozen TV series, several for MTM Productions, before working with Barry Kemp on both The Popcorn Kid and Fresno in 1986 at age 43. As the majestic manager Mr. Leonard Brown, Burke played the only constantly seen authority figure to the young crew in the Popcorn Kid series. He commented to the press at the time, It's based on character and character relationships, not gags. I reached out to Burke for a comment on his short stint on the Popcorn Kid, which he kindly provided. I thought it was pretty good television. This largely due to the solid sensibilities and writing skills of Barry Kemp and the writer he hired. Doing any series that gets picked up is always a thrill, and it was a wonderful experience, first to last. I also did Fresno, as well as several episodes of Coach. Barry was very loyal to his actors. I do recall how disappointed we all were at not being picked up for more episodes. I think we all believed in the show and each other. Following the Popcorn Kid, Burke filmed a segment for Amazon Women on the Moon, 
and appeared as a guest actor on numerous TV series of the 80s and 90s, including recurring roles on Cheers, The Wonder Years, Dear John, L.A. Law, and Coach, again working with Barry Kemp. Since then, Burke has kept quite busy appearing on stage at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis and in occasional film and TV roles. The 78-year-old actor will next be seen in the film Seed of Doubt, now in post-production. John Christopher Jones came on the acting scene on television in 1977 as a regular on CBS's On Our Own, but mainly spent his time performing in a string of Broadway plays before being cast as eccentric projectionist Marlon Bond in The Popcorn Kid. Since that time, you might recall him from character roles on films Moonstruck, Awakenings, or The Village, but he continued to be prolific on stage, appearing in numerous Broadway and off-Broadway productions. However, his work has understandably slowed since his diagnosis with Parkinson's disease nearly 20 years ago. Jones was a subject of the documentary The Endgame Project, which followed him during his 10th year of Parkinson's as he rehearsed for a stage role. The film finally debuted last year at the Slamdance Film Festival. Jones was featured in a 2018 podcast episode of Back to One, where he discussed the challenges he has faced working with the disease. He most recently appeared on an episode of NBC's New Amsterdam, about which he quipped to the LA Times, I've had a hard time learning lines for a while now, but the best thing about TV is that if you mess up, you can do it again. The only recurring supporting character we saw on The Popcorn Kid was that of Scott's father, Beryl Creaseman, played by James Staley. A character actor with a 24-year career, Staley started as an understudy on Broadway in 1972, then began appearing in very minor roles on episodic TV in Sugar Time and The Jeffersons. In 1978, he was cast as a regular on NBC's short-lived The Waverly Wonders. Also that year, he was doing a callback audition for an Illinois Bell commercial, along with one other actor, who floored the casting agents with his antics and got the role. Excuse me, we're thinking of changing our phones around. Ah, uh, any rooms in particular? I'm not sure. You see, we're redecorating. Ah, uh, well, for a bedroom, we have this princess phone. Lights in the dark. And for a kitchen, we usually recommend a wall phone like this trim one. Gee, that is handy. People of us. Three weeks later, this same actor landed a guest spot on Happy Days and ended up with his own series. That other actor was, of course, Robin Williams. And a few years later, James Staley played the priest who married Mork and Mindy. Staley later appeared in the Barry Kemp series Newhart, leading to roles on both The Popcorn Kid and Fresno. He also did get cast in TV commercials for brands like Contact, Parker Brothers, and Big Red Gum. Since 1996, Staley says he has been happily retired from acting. A blurb he provided on his IMDb profile related his gratefulness for the great adventure the performing arts provided him. He has been an Emmy judge for the last 30 years and is active with his two sons and their families. 
Married to wife Barbara for over 50 years, they now enjoy a life of travel and doting over their grandsons. Other behind-the-scenes talent, aside from Barry Kemp and Mark Ganzel, included Mark Egan and Mark Solomon, both writers and creative consultants on the show. Both were also writers and producers on both Alice and Newhart, and Solomon went on to be a producer on Grace Under Fire and creative consultant for Diagnosis Murder. Jay Kleckner was a producer on The Popcorn Kid, who also worked on Newhart, Fresno, and Coach, among other series, as was Emily Marshall, who had been a writer on Rhoda, WKRP, Angie, and Newhart. Nearly all episodes were directed by Will McKenzie and David Steinberg. McKenzie was known for both acting and directing other sitcoms, such as Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, The Bob Newhart Show, WKRP, and Nothing is Easy, the Popcorn Kids lead-in. Steinberg is a Clio and Emmy Award-winning Canadian comedian, actor, and director known for Newhart, Evening Shade, Designing Women, and Mad About You, as well as over 300 TV commercials. James Gardner was director of the episode featuring Ed Asner. He also directed episodes of Barry Kemp's Coming of Age and Coach and produced several TV movies starting in the 2000s. Today, he's the director of television studies at Chapman University. Don't go away. The popcorn kid will be right back. Wouldn't some hot buttered popcorn hit the spot right now? Extra fluffy, extra big kernels of it pop to perfection then drenched with the golden goodness of pure, sweet, creamery butter. Can't you just taste it? We heap the container extra high, but <laughs> you better buy two more for the rest of the family. Piping hot, golden buttered popcorn at the refreshment center right now. The Popcorn Kid opening theme was composed by Gary Portnoy and Judy Hart Angelo. If you don't know these names, you know their music. At a crossroads in their respective lives in 1981, Portnoy was between songwriting partners at the time, and Hart's youngest had just started first grade. A chance meeting with a Broadway producer at a restaurant led to the two teaming up as a lark to collaborate on songs for a musical called Preppies. Months after composing the opening number, People Like Us, that poked fun at the lifestyle of decadent old money wasps, they were contacted by a producer that let them know they wanted the melody for a new NBC sitcom that would be airing the following fall. All they had to do was rewrite the lyrics. This didn't fly with the producers of Preppies as they owned the rights to the song. Discouraged but intent on providing a theme song for the new show, the pair attempted to replicate the tone and melody of People Like Us into a new theme they called My Kind of People. With this replacement rejected by the sitcom producers, they set out to take another crack at the theme, this time reading the script to the first episode of the upcoming show. This attempt, called Another Day, was also rejected. Producers Glenn and Les Charles believed in them, but time was running short as they entered the spring of 1982, and the possibility that NBC would find other songwriters began looming. One day, in the wake of a breakup and Portnoy was noodling around on the keyboard, a simple melody arose 
and the two put down some lyrics. Singing the blues when the Red Sox lose, it's a crisis in your life. On the run cause all your girlfriends want to be your wife. And the laundry tickets in the wash. Gloomy lyrics, but the addition of a connecting phrase, accompanied by a tonal change of direction and musical buildup into an energetic burst of joy, led to the creation of one of the most iconic TV themes of all time. Singing the blues when the Red Sox lose, it's a crisis in your life. On the run, cause all your girlfriends want to be your wife. And the laundry tickets in the wash All those nights when you've got no lights The check is in the mail And your little angel hung the cat up by its tail And your third fiancé didn't show Sometimes you want to go Where everybody knows your name Troubles are all the same You want to go where everybody knows your name The opening lyrics would be changed to be more universally identifiable, but Where Everybody Knows Your Name was an obvious winner, and Portnoy was even chosen to sing the theme in the same style as the demo. Portnoy and Hart were flown to L.A., and on a huge Paramount soundstage, the score was recorded by only four musicians. A drummer, a guitarist, a bass player, and Portnoy himself on piano. He then recorded the lead vocal, harmonizing with the previously recorded chorus. NBC's Emmy Award-winning Cheers would run for an incredible 11 seasons and later become one of the most popular shows in TV syndication. And the theme itself transcended the show, being one of the most recognizable pieces of music ever recorded for television. It has been used for TV commercials, spoofed, covered, and referenced countless times in pop culture. In a 2011 reader's poll for Rolling Stone, where everybody knows your name, was voted the best television theme of all time. And in 2013, TV Guide magazine also named it the greatest TV theme of all time. The Broadway musical Preppies ran for a couple of months in the fall of 1983, and the closing performance played to an audience of 11. Gary Portnoy and Judy Hart Angelo went on to provide music themes for Punky Brewster, with Portnoy's vocals also used for that theme, as well as Mr. Belvedere, Marblehead Manor, and The Popcorn Kid. The visual part of the opening segment of The Popcorn Kid is a series of still images that flash on the screen in keeping with the musical beat. The images used evoke fun and also the specialness of moviegoing in eras gone by. The classic archival photos used started off with that of women lined up outside an unnamed theater to see a double feature of Man of the West and Hong Kong Confidential in 1958. A banner under the marquee bragged, 
cooled by refrigeration, as air conditioning was a big selling point in the summer in an age when not every household had air conditioning. The next set of images were that of a teenage boy buying 70-cent tickets for him and his date. A movie poster for the 1954 film Gorilla at Large is peeking out at the edge of the frame. Evidently not having enough money, his girlfriend gives him a dollar. The next picture was of a man buying tickets for his family for the 50-cent admission to see the 1953 film City of Bad Men. The last classic photo used was of a mother buying tickets to 1947's Gunfighters for her two children, one of them a boy fully decked out in a cowboy outfit. The picture was one of several in a series taken outside Lowe's 72nd Street Theater in New York City, in what I assume has to be a staged photo shoot, as were almost all the pictures seen. The CBS Fall 1986 network slogan was Share the Spirit of CBS, which appealed to viewer emotions by recalling the good times they've had watching CBS programs, with an emphasis on returning favorites, such as Newhart, Magnum P.I., Cagney and Lacey, and Simon and Simon. New shows for the fall season were called out in the longer versions, but sadly, the popcorn kid was not included being a very late addition to mid-season, with filming on the five episodes following the pilot not beginning until October. However, the show did get a few promo spots as it got closer to the premiere date of March 23, 1987. CBS even enlisted Dick Loudon, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl to record one. Something exciting is coming to CBS this week, the popcorn kit. Not him. It's a TV show, and it's sneak previews Monday night between Kate Nally and Newhart. Unfortunately, that's mud wrestling night for me and the Darrells. The Popcorn Kid. Of course, I suppose we could watch while we're mud wrestling. Catch a sneak preview Monday on CBS. There was also this more traditional promo. Down here at the Majestic, you'll find the best show in town. There's comedy. You want a date? Yes. Romance. Okay, why not? And that's just in the lobby. Butter this. It's the Popcorn Kid, and it's the most fun you can have at the movies without leaving home. The Popcorn Kid on CBS, opening in Homes Everywhere, Friday, March 27th. CBS also ran two impossible-to-miss full-page TV Guide print ads in the March 21st through 27th issue that had the taglines, They've got showbiz in their blood, stardom in their dreams, and sticky floors to sweep. And... They're fantastic dreamers who've made it in the movies. Plain and buttered. I saw the network promos for the show and tuned in. I usually had to record the show, not getting home from the theater early enough to watch it, and played it after the family was finished watching TV that night. Not understanding at the time that the series was just a late mid-season replacement and basically only a test order of six episodes, I was personally disappointed that the show simply disappeared from the schedule. Looking for it in the fall of 1987, it was nowhere to be found. The show received undeniably poor ratings, but in reality, all programs airing in the 8-7 central hour on Friday had weak ratings relative to the rest of the week, or even later the same evening. Still, the show seemed not to garner much viewer appreciation. 
A poll run by the Pittsburgh Press revealed the Popcorn Kid as the number four CBS show respondents voted to cancel. It was also specifically named in the three least favorite shows for adults over age 54. Yikes. Critical reviews of the show were somewhat mixed with mostly negative headlines, incorporating some kind of popcorn joke. You know, it was popcorny. It needed a kernel of humor. But it was also called sentimental, that it sizzled. And Bud Wilkinson said it offered numerous kernels of mirth, and that it was a cute, frequently funny show. However, there was more going on behind the scenes than a cursory examination of reviews, scheduling, and Nielsen ratings reveals. A shakeup in corporate management was brewing at CBS in 1986. Thomas Wyman, CBS president since 1980, who was also appointed CBS chairman in 1983 by none other than founder William Paley, was ousted from the position in the fall of 1986 after a then little-known investor named Larry Tisch of the Lowe's conglomerate, that's L-O-E-W-S, had accumulated enough CBS stock to join and control the board of directors. The dramatic takeover was written up in Time magazine and made the cover in September. Tish slashed the new budget, reduced programming costs, cut hundreds of jobs, and sold network-owned concerns such as CBS Records in 1987. In addition, Harvey Shepard, who had served as head of programming for CBS since 1977, resigned from the network on June 1st of 1986, citing the tremendous pressures he had been under in pursuit of viewer ratings. He was replaced by Kim LaMaster. This was pointed out to me by Ray Burke, commenting on the show's cancellation. I think network politics played a big part in our being dropped. A new head of programming at CBS came in. This was not a project he had picked or could take responsibility for should it have found its audience and started to draw bigger numbers. In hindsight, I think he regretted it. But such is life in the world of television. With CBS coming in a mediocre second for the 1986-87 TV season, only being able to claim six out of the top 20 shows, LeMaster aggressively canceled 16 programs from the roster, most of which he had no ties to, announcing a fall 1987 schedule with a focus away from sitcoms and movies in favor of more one-hour dramas. After cancellation, The Popcorn Kid popped up briefly on Australia's Channel 9 in 1990, but I found no reference to it ever being aired again anywhere and the show faded into obscurity. As presented on the show, the fictional Majestic was a historic Depression-era downtown Kansas City theater. The large auditorium with balcony incorporated a stage as well as movie screen, so it could be used for live events. The Majestic was loosely based on a real downtown historic theater in Kansas City, Missouri, that Barry Kemp was well aware of seeing that he spent about five years of his youth there. The Plaza Theater, located at 47th and Wyandotte in Kansas City, opened in October 1928 
almost exactly one year before the Great Depression. It was part of one of the first planned shopping centers in the U.S., the Country Club Plaza. Unlike post-Depression theaters like the Brunson, with its relatively practical interior design, the Plaza was a well-appointed, ornate movie palace. Like the Majestic, the Plaza had a large stage and over the decades featured live shows, music performances, and lectures in addition to films. The Plaza's exterior facade design complemented the architecture of the surrounding retail center. Featuring Spanish-style tile-covered towers, including a 72-foot cathedral-style bell tower, the interior was even more spectacular. One of the key features of the inner red-tiled courtyard was the water fountain imported from Spain. The courtyard ceiling was painted to have a blue sky appearance. Said to be a liberal education in Spanish and Moorish art, the interior was practically a museum featuring objects of art from medieval to modern. The auditorium itself was a marvel, taking its theme from the Palacio de las Duenas of Seville, and above the stage was the proscenium arch where the Habsburg coat of arms hung. A Wurlitzer organ stood ready to accompany silent features or entertain during live performances. The original seating capacity included 1,500 in the main auditorium and 500 in the balcony, for a total of 2,000. A glorious arched ceiling stood above the magnificent carpeted staircase leading to the balcony. Wrought iron elements, imported tapestries, and Spanish furnishings were found everywhere throughout. Separate men's and women's lounges were found in the basement. The gentlemen could observe a pair of ancient Moorish guns on display, inlaid with silver and ivory, as well as antique saddlebag, powder horn, and daggers hung over the mantel. The ladies would enjoy an antique fireplace imported from Algeciras. Antique paisley shawls from Granada decorated the lounge couches. On top of all this luxury, the forward-thinking planners provided an unheard-of 350-car, walled, attended, free parking lot, which answered the question of where to park the motor car for patrons driving into downtown. The Plaza Theater was designed by Bowler Brothers, responsible for designing some 176 theaters, mainly in the Midwest United States, including the Texas Theater here in downtown San Antonio, which was done in Spanish colonial and Rococo style. According to the Cinema Treasures website, 46 of their theaters are still open, and 29 are still showing films. The first film engaged at the plaza was 1928's Street Angel with Janet Gaynor, a transitional sound film. Although it had no recorded dialogue displaying the traditional intertitle cards, it did feature a movie tone soundtrack with sound effects and a music score performed by the 100-piece New York Roxy Theater Orchestra. The premiere was a significant Kansas City to-do with patrons filling the 2,000-seat auditorium after being serenaded by Spanish troubadours. In addition, the plaza employed two banjo boys, a soprano, and an organist. 
Theater manager Jack F. Truitt received congratulatory telegrams from film stars Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell, as well as from several prominent Hollywood notables. Beginning in 1951, the Kansas City Music Club sponsored the Thursday morning series of lectures and musical performances held at the theater. The list of names of series participants is quite impressive. Charles Lawton, Agnes Moorhead, Jessica Tandy, Hume Cronin, Claude Rains, Edward R. Murrow, and many others. The 1950s also saw the plaza becoming a second-run theater for a time, running new films four weeks after initial release. In 1961, the original screen was replaced with a larger one, and 70mm projection was added. However, the screen position was relocated, the orchestra pit covered, and the organ removed. The 1960s also saw the plaza come under ownership of National General, as it took over Fox Midwest Theaters, and it again began running first-run films. In 1973, Mann Theaters acquired the plaza when they bought National General. In 1976, as the movie exhibition business entered the new age of blockbuster films, a turning point in the plaza's history took place. Facing an increasing number of film releases, as well as competition from several new multi-screen theaters in Kansas City, including a sixplex at the new Metro North Shopping Center and a four-screen at Seville Square right downtown, the decision to add a second screen to the plaza was made. The balcony was walled off from the main auditorium and separated into a second screen. An additional projection booth was added for the main auditorium downstairs. The new renovations were reportedly done with a minimal disruption of interior design. The plaza reopened, showing Marathon Man and the Ritz. Not a year later, after midnight, in the early morning hours of September 12, 1977, the worst rainstorms to ever hit Kansas City began, triggering what would become known as the downtown plaza flood. The first wave of rain had saturated the ground and drainage basins, and that evening, nightlife went on downtown despite the flash flood warning. But a second wave of storms began just before 8 p.m., causing Brush Creek to overflow and five feet of water flooded Ward Parkway from the eventual total of 16 inches of rain. In a surreal scene, cars floated by on the street while diners were still inside restaurants having dinner and helpless bar patrons trapped inside toasted the floodwaters. 385 people attending a concert at the Alameda Plaza Hotel had to be evacuated from a foot of standing water. A damaged gas main ignited, resulting in an explosion and fires on West 48th Street. The entire basement of the Plaza Theater was flooded and two feet of water stood in the lobby. In the wake of the flood, some 2,000 vehicles had to be towed away from downtown with 150 pulled out of Brush Creek. While at least 25 people died and thousands were displaced as many homes in poor, predominantly black, nearby neighborhoods were destroyed, the press focused on property damage in the hardest hit downtown plaza and it was called 
the Plaza Flood. Downtown cleanup took place, and the Plaza Theater reopened in October, featuring George Burns' Oh God. When the 1979-1980 engagement of The Jerk played for an incredible 12 weeks at the Plaza, Steve Martin himself had to stop by and see what was up, showing up unannounced. We intentionally stuck in a boring part in the middle, just for you theater owners. About an hour into the picture, they're going to be out buying your popcorn in droves. They're going to be lined up. You may even have to take on extra help just to handle all the business. (laughs) During the run of The Jerk, the plaza again changed hands, this time to Dickinson Theaters. Dickinson split the balcony in 1983, and the plaza became a triplex, reopening with Sudden Impact, Yentl, and To Be or Not To Be. Dolby Stereo was added to the main auditorium and one of the balcony screens, but the third remained mono sound. However, this remodeling resulted in much of the interior decor being covered by paneling and curtains. Still, patrons would say it was nicer than the tiny auditoriums offered by the Seville Four down the street. But even three screens couldn't keep up with theatrical business trends. Not only were movie patrons now beginning to be attracted to the multiplex close to their neighborhood or to those found in shopping malls, these locations resulted in increasing competition for theatrical bookings. In the mid-1970s, only around 400 film prints of a major Hollywood film were produced on average. If you wanted to see Earthquake, you had to attend the Midland Empire 7, while Airport 1975 had to be seen at the plaza downtown. Star Wars was shown only at Dickinson's Glenwood location on the break, while the plaza was still playing its exclusive engagement of Airport 77. A bit of trivia here. Star Wars, the film often named when discussing this turning point in theatrical distribution, only played at 42 theaters when it was first released. By comparison, 1976's King Kong opened on 964 screens, 1978's Grease on 862, and Star Trek The Motion Picture played on a then-groundbreaking 1,002 screens by its third week of release. When the era of saturation distribution and marketing wide-release films began in the 1980s, With a movie opening at multiple locations throughout Kansas City, sellouts at the larger downtown venues died out. By 1999, with moviegoers able to choose between a dozen large multiplexes throughout the metro area, all showing the same first-run films, moviegoers no longer had reason to venture downtown to the Plaza 3. In particular, however, it was the Cinemark Palace 15 being constructed a five-minute walk away downtown that drove the final nail into the coffin of the plaza. Dickinson Theaters closed the plaza on April 4, 1999, with the final films True Crime, The Other Sister, and The King and I and Ravenous playing on a split screen. The closure garnered a small article in the Kansas City Star Entertainment insert, which ran a couple of photos with blurbs underneath. The pictures, however, were dwarfed by the ads for the out-of-towners and the Matrix.
the now empty space was rented out for retail use. Although the stairs to the balcony were sadly removed and some of the interior did not survive the transition to retail, some online sources say the auditorium was used as a stockroom with a removable floor and drop ceiling, preserving the stage and original ceiling, and that the downstairs lounges were also left intact. The beautiful exterior was also not destroyed. In 2017, the location became Restoration Emporium, an upscale home furnishing store. The financial impact of the pandemic greatly affected RE, and they have made the decision to close the location. A liquidation sale is slated to be held in April 2022, leaving the future uncertain for the Plaza building. However, the fact that much of the interior was reportedly left intact raises the possibility for the Plaza to be restored, perhaps as a live performance venue. While MTM Productions ceased operation in 1998, its library is now evidently owned by Disney as a result of multiple studio acquisitions. But the extremely short run of the Popcorn Kid, as well as its obscurity, virtually precludes a DVD release. Although more than one person has floated the idea of packaging it along with other short-lived MTM rarities, such as FM and The Duck Factory, or what about MTM's non-sitcom offerings, such as The Texas Wheelers, Three for the Road, or Tattingers? An entire catalog sits unreleased, waiting to see the light of day. However, I doubt I'll be holding my breath to see any of these show up on Disney+. As far as the Popcorn Kid is concerned, while the original YouTube channel that posted episodes in 2014 has been terminated, these have been mirrored by channel The Lost Media Wiki, which retains some of the bumpers and station breaks. But better quality copies have been preserved on the Internet Archive, linked in the show notes. Show co-creator Mark Ganzel went on to co-run the third season of Fox series Herman's Head, work again with Barry Kemp as an executive producer on Coach, and worked on Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place, running that show in its second season. But his credits end shortly after. During research of this podcast, I found that in late October of 2002, Mark Ganzel died of cancer in his Sherman Oaks, California home. His death did not make the news, and no obituary ever ran. He was 51. Following the Popcorn Kid, Barry Kemp formed Bungalow 78 Productions and entered a five-year deal to develop TV and theatrical projects for Universal. You may have heard of some of them. ABC's Coach with Craig T. Nelson ran nine seasons, and Kemp again got to work with Jerry Van Dyke. A Minute with Stan Hooper, you might not remember. It starred Norm MacDonald and Penelope Ann Miller, and aired in 2003 on the Fox Network. However, Kemp produced some very successful films in the 1990s, which include Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, Patch Adams, and Catch Me If You Can in 2002. Now 72, he seems to be retired and lives life out of the public eye.
I have a personal connection to the popcorn kid, which has likely been more than obvious from this podcast. While at the time of original airing, I identified with Scott. As an adult, I realize I'm much more like Marlon, constantly quoting movies, able to tell you what year a film was released, and comfortable inside his own booth, peppered with many posters of films from the past. While the majestic in the popcorn kid was fictional, it may as well have been real, as what threatened it in the first episode really happened, many thousands of times over, to downtown single screens in the U.S. Like the Brunson and the Plaza, most didn't survive. Of the some 30,000 closed theaters in the U.S., 190 were named Majestic, and 100 of those were demolished, adding to the total of over 15,000. Many still sit languishing in downtowns, such as the Brunson and Plaza. But sometimes there is a somewhat happy ending. After nearly 35 years of sitting abandoned and deteriorating, the city of Baytown began repairs and renovations on the Brunson building. A budget exceeding that of its original cost adjusted for inflation was allocated with an aim to revitalize downtown into an arts district and turn the Brunson into a visitor information center and business incubator. Sadly, over the decades, the roof had disintegrated, leaving only the structural beams and the auditorium exposed to the weather. The walls were reinforced, structural repairs made, and a new roof constructed. The decision was made to turn a portion of the former auditorium into an open-air courtyard for events. Unfortunately, the original interior terrazzo flooring in the lobby was beyond repair, but it was recreated to again display the red and tan rays radiating from the green sun in the center. A slightly modernized but generally historically accurate reproduction of the original appearance of the exterior was constructed. The round box office was restored using the original aluminum exterior. A V-shaped marquee featuring new electronic signage was installed with the upright Baytown logo at the center. A new reproduction of the classic 50-foot-tall vertical Brunson neon sign was put in, complete with the Tri-City symbol and the Brunson again illuminated downtown after nearly 37 years. A 70th anniversary grand reopening was held August 23, 2019. At the nearby courtyard, an outdoor movie was held where the documentary film When the Lights Went Down premiered. The film chronicles some of the history of the Brunson as Baytown residents recall their movie-going memories. It was narrated by Wilford Brimley in one of the final projects he worked on prior to his death in 2020. Today, the Baytown Visitor Information Center greets visitors at the Brunson Building. No, we can't turn back the clock, but perhaps some of the abandoned downtown single-screen theater buildings that still sit unused can be repurposed, as was done with the Brunson preserving at least some of their historic nature. As for the movie business itself, it is undergoing yet another shift. After TV series released a DVD created what we now know as binge viewing, visual storytelling began shifting to an episodic nature. 
Some projects that studios previously would have released to theaters as a film are now produced as season-long stories on premium streaming services. When the pandemic saw theaters close, many films that would have seen a theatrical release were also put out on home streaming. This shift even has the Academy pondering what constitutes a film anymore. We have yet to see how all this will play out. But I wouldn't count out movie theaters just yet. For many of us that grew up in an earlier time, there's no substitute for the smell of popcorn, having your ticket torn, and entering the auditorium, where we can be transported to the Old West or another galaxy be totally absorbed in a documentary, explore other cultures via international film, or brought to laughter or tears by whatever comedy or drama unfolds before us in the hushed darkness. Next time on Forgotten TV. Quadris. 12 light years across the galaxy from Earth. It was home for us until an intergalactic armada conquered it. I fought by the royal family's side, but in vain. Even their remarkable powers weren't enough. The Crown Prince and I escaped to the nearest planet on which we could survive and further his powers in order to someday return to free his people. He was a prince from another planet turned teenage hunk dealing with life on Earth. Join me as I revisit this series for the first time since original network airing. And together we will find out just what are the powers of Matthew Starr next time on Forgotten TV. Did you know you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and get your own podcast feed? Exclusive content is found there, which includes Forgotten TV Supplemental, over 20 podcasts in addition to the ones in the main feed, which include full-length interviews with TV creators, additional documentaries, and my upcoming look at Dr. Albert Burke, a now virtually forgotten Yale academic and prominent television host that pioneered educational television on NBC before PBS even existed. This fascinating show will contain never-before-heard facts about the history of this individual who had one of the longest-running educational TV shows in syndication before he vanished from the public eye. Won't you join us over on Patreon? The link is found right here in your podcast player. This episode was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, and Joshua Driscoll, with producers Julio Capa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, K.L. Young, Kenny Siegel, Ralph Caracillo, Ron, and new producer Trevor Pearson. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by CBS, MTM Productions, Bungalow 78, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. 
The Popcorn Kid is the copyright and property of MTN Productions, 20th Television, The Walt Disney Company, and possibly additional rights holders. Other series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Where Everybody Knows Your Name and other song clips in the theme song segment were written and composed by Gary Portnoy and Judy Hart Angelo. These can be heard on his official website, GaryPortnoy.com, which tells the full-length story of the Cheers theme I only told the highlights of. These and all audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. All remaining underscore music is used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. This podcast is copyright 2022 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and selected websites. While reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of those audio clips possible. The Lost Media Wiki, David Gideon, Soundtrack Fred, Warner Brothers, Bozalicus, the Commodores, Maxi Taxiphone, Vic Damone, Topic, The Kino Library, Memory Museum, GH32143, Stephen Brandt, Allison Arngram, Topic, DJ Tulst, Mijo Callum Phanum, FT Depot, Tucson Analog Workshop, Gabriel Coelho, Random Videos, No Requests, Redescriptions, Matthew Plant, The Norm Channel, Bad Brain. With a special thanks to Ray Burke and James Gardner. Sources of quotes and background material not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The book, Great American Movie Theaters by David Naylor. The trade periodical Exhibitors Herald and Moving Picture World of December 22, 1928. And articles at the following websites and periodicals. Visit Baytown. Houston Deco, The Baytown Sun, Cinema Treasures, Uproar Entertainment, The Steppenwolf Theater, The Twin Cities Pioneer Press, The Endgame Project, Distractify, Filmmaker Magazine, Television Obscurities, The Kansas City Star, The Kansas City Times, Fandango, and numerous period newspaper articles archived at newspapers.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.